Hi guys, I am jumping on the feed to re-release the Titanic on film Ghosts of the Abyss episode from a few months ago. I thought I, I thought this might be a good idea for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's a great companion piece to the James Cameron episode that I released yesterday. I think if you want to get a little bit more of a detailed window into his expeditions down to Titanic, and obviously particularly the 2001 expedition that is featured in Ghosts of the Abyss. It's just a great way to spend a little bit more time with Cameron. I remember when I was researching the Ghosts of the Abyss, I not only felt just a great pull of nostalgia and sort of wonder at their footage, but also it was the series of moments of studying it that really got me interested in James Cameron, not only as director of Titanic, but James Cameron as ocean explorer, as innovator. So if you haven't heard the episode, I highly recommend you give it a listen. Maybe watch the movie first. Maybe pause here and come back when you've watched Ghosts of the Abyss, or I could see it working either way. Listen and then watch And if you're in the mood for more Cameron, (laughs) then this is a great way to spend some more time with him. And also, second reason I wanted to re-release is I've got a lot of new listeners from all around the world, which is exciting. And so I wanted to kind of bump the Titanic on film series back up to the top of the feed just to give those new listeners a sense of what I've been doing and hope you enjoy If you are a new listener, welcome. I'm so excited you're here. All right, guys, I will see you soon with the brand new episode in the Back to 1997 series. Just about five more days and we'll be back with that. All right, guys. Bye. Have a good week. In August of 1992, James Cameron was 37 years old, zooming down a Russian freeway in this old beat-up car driven by a scientist and submarine pilot named Dr. Anatoly Sagalovich. In the back seat was Cameron's colleague, Al Geddings. The car breaks down and they find themselves laughing on the side of the road. Of all the places in the world to end up, Here they were. They'd flown to Moscow to discuss the chartering of the ship, the academic Mitislav Keldish. There were only five subs in the world at that time that could dive below 12,000 feet, and two of them were on the Keldish. Giddings had spent the summer of 1991 on that ship, diving the wreck of Titanic for the CBS documentary Treasures of the Deep. When Cameron attended its premiere earlier in 1992, he'd just rewatched A Night to Remember, said he'd taken it down off the shelf on a whim. Cameron and Giddings talked all night after that premiere until the janitors evicted them. Titanic. It was suddenly all about Titanic.
Giddings, a renowned deep-sea cinematographer who had been director of underwater photography for Cameron's film The Abyss, would now join a long line of people who spoke with fatigue and often complained about Cameron's grueling sets, but then ended up pretty eagerly signing up to work with him again down the line. Under codename Big Boat, the two headed to Russia to spend time on the Keldish with Anatoly and his crew. They slid into life aboard it, a venture which culminated in one night where apparently a little too much vodka was consumed by all, save for a row of women in chairs who were deemed designated drivers and also segregated from the men's tables. I feel like that deserves a pause. And on this night, Anatoly apparently yelled, we do it, we make Hollywood movie. This was 1992. Three years later, Cameron would indeed board the Keldish to film footage for one of the most successful movies of all time. And nine years later, he'd be back again to make another movie, this time a documentary. In fact, he was about to spend a certain percentage of his life on the Keldish. And if James Cameron was already known as a pathfinder in Hollywood's mind, one who swung big shots, this film would also cement his place as a ferociously adventurous explorer of the deep. In fact, Cameron has said about himself, I'm an explorer at heart, a filmmaker by trade. James Cameron was headed back to Titanic. And this time, Bill Paxton comes along, which for my 90s kid sensibilities is also a pretty big deal. I'm LA Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. I recommend a nice cocktail for this one. Guys, let's dive down to the silt and the muck of the ocean floor, where there are more secrets than anywhere else in the world. This is Titanic on film, Ghosts of the Abyss. Titanic sank on the outskirts of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, a spot famous for its very erratic weather, a stretch of ocean literally nicknamed Hurricane Alley. Heavy winds are common, and the Keldish is no stranger to skirting a storm. No ship here is. Titanic now rests 13,000 feet below that ocean's surface, and finding the wreck was a long and arduous process that started at least in its concept, in 1912. In 1914, popular mechanics predicted that children of survivors would see the wreck resting on the ocean floor, would get to see photographs of it somehow. 
1985, when it was discovered, some survivors were still alive to see it as well. I have an entire episode on the discovery of the wreck coming soon, so I'm not going to dwell too long here on that. But what you should know to talk about Ghosts of the Abyss is that Robert Ballard, one of the men who discovered the Titanic wreck as part of a joint mission with the French team, he's a huge inspiration for James Cameron. And their personal histories, if not directly and personally linked, I cannot speak to that, of course, but conceptually, they are certainly intimately tied. Ballard had spent years at Woods Hole in Massachusetts, a deep submergence lab, developing an instrument to undertake the search for the Titanic. This turned into Argo, an unmanned camera vehicle that could be towed through the ocean, sending messages via a fiber optic cable. With this technology and the skills of a large team of naval experts, Titanic's debris field finally crept eerily into view on September 1st, 1985. For the first time in 73 years at that point, human eyes looked upon the ship. Ballard went back with a manned sub called Alvin and the remotely operated camera vehicle he called Jason Jr., these divers and scientists, they name their vehicles. It's a thing. <laughs> and images shown in a 1987 National Geographic Explorer documentary were watched by, among, of course, so many others, Jim Cameron. Cameron watched this and he realized that the ROVs, the remotely operated vehicles, on the ocean floor were like science fiction literally come true. And he set out to make a film that was directly in that vein. And if you know Cameron's filmography, then you know that that film turned into The Abyss in 1989. But what's also fun to know is that at this point in the late 80s, he's making early Titanic notes already, even writing down that he needed a present day story to ground the narrative, to ground the love story. And he would need scenes of the wreck, the real wreck to do that. Cameron had always loved the water. And trust me, when I do my series on the 97 movie, we'll talk a lot about his background in more detail. But for now, you should know that he's been a diver since he was a kid, when he would skin dive in Chippewa Creek in his Canadian hometown near Niagara Falls, which from what I understand is what they call a creek, but what some of us less trained in the outdoors like me, full disclosure, might view as a pretty rough river. He watched Jacques Cousteau. He trained with the YMCA as a child in the dead of northeastern winter in the chlorinated pool of the local high school in Buffalo, New York, where his dad would drive him sometimes through blizzards. Scuba diving wasn't a sport really yet, and it was taught still with this naval precision. So this is how he learned. Not with other kids, but with men with frightening drills where his mask would be ripped off. And it was this intense level of skill that would help him keep his cool later when he was in some rather scary diving situations, notably on the set of The Abyss. Sometimes he would dive alone on the creek with his father holding a rope standing on the dock. Combine that story with the one from his mother circa about 1964, when Jim was 10, in which she remembers him assembling a gang of neighborhood kids to build an airplane. And then she looks out the window to see Jim sitting in it being pulled. 
by all the other kids. Combine those two stories, and I think you get a pretty good idea of that Cameron-ness forming very early. And by the way, guys, you're going to hear me referring to him as Jim. I obviously don't know him. I wish I did. But a, a lot of the biographies I read or articles that were written by people that know him fairly well seem to refer to him as Jim more than James. So that made sense. I just wanted to explain why I made that particular decision. And when he is a teenager, Jim's family moves to California, where he finally gets into the ocean, and his love of diving doesn't go anywhere. In fact, it grows and grows and grows. Fast forward to the 1980s. He is an established filmmaker and screenwriter by now, of course, after Terminator and Aliens. And after this hit of extra underwater inspiration from Ballard, what he sees from Ballard, this is the man who then, Cameron, Cameron's the man, who then outfits and fills a former nuclear power plant to build the biggest submerged set in film history for the abyss. The set required a row of 20,000 BTU heaters to warm 7.5 million gallons of water. So not just the largest underwater set ever, but also just this magnificent feat of engineering. And on that set, he was underwater so much that he impressed even the pro divers hired to be there with his endurance. He also almost drowned, unfortunately, when there was a mix-up with his oxygen, and it was his hard-scrabble training by military men back in the YMCA pool that helped him survive scrapes like that, truly. A few years later, when he decided to make Titanic, and he has those first fits of excitement along with his friend Al Giddings, when he makes that first impulsive trip to Russia to woo the Russian sub-pilots, Cameron also knew that the venture would require him to essentially create the underwater technology that he required. He would turn to his brother, Mike, an engineer, to make the impossible possible. Mike had already built the diver propulsion vehicle for the abyss. There's a lot of genius in this family, folks, and I haven't even mentioned Cameron's mother. I'll talk about her soon. If you haven't noticed already, there are roots in this episode that are going to extend to the 1997 series of episodes. So for the 1995 expedition to Titanic, and this expedition would produce some of that footage you see in the 97 movie as Bill Paxton's character Brock Lovett explores in his sub, the Cameron brothers built a 35mm movie camera that could function at 13,000 feet underwater, where pressure is about 5,000 pounds per square inch. Prior to all of that, Film work at this depth had been through a sub-window, so it had been insanely muted and low quality. Cameron wanted to pan, he wanted to tilt, he wanted it to be cinematic, just like real filming up above water. Wanted the camera as its own separate thing. He needed a remote device and a camera housing as well, and he needed an ROV, remotely operated vehicle, like Ballard had. One that Cameron would name Snoop Dogg. See, they all named them and worked it into his film in the present-day sequences with Brock. He's the little orange bot at the beginning of the movie. In 1995, ahead of the Keldish sailing, Mike Cameron took to faxing long lists of questions to the Russian pilot Anatoly about electrical schematics of the Keldish, 
And Anatoly apparently would simply reply, Mike, Mir, that's the sub, Mir has big power. No problem. There you go. But in those 1995 dives, Cameron had not been able to go as far into the ship as he wanted. He'd been thrilled by the experience. He cut his teeth in the tiny subs, which we'll talk about here in a minute, and some of his footage was truly astounding. The one of the crab peeking out from fallen furniture on the ocean floor in the 97 film opening, it's chilling. And Cameron had several sort of iceberg for lack of a better term, moments himself at the wreck in 95, so to speak, narrowly avoiding collisions when he was down in a sub. This is not safe work, it should be noted. And when someone calls Cameron an explorer, it's not out of some ceremonial sense of pandering or anything like that. He really, really is. After Titanic, he figured his best shot at getting back to the bottom of the ocean would be selling a documentary about revisiting the wreck. But don't be mistaken, he wasn't begrudging in any way. This wasn't begrudging. Cameron is obsessed with Titanic. He wanted to get back there. And he also wanted to test new 3D cameras. 3D had been a gimmick up to that point, really, all the way back to Vincent Price movies like The House of Wax and The Mad Magician in the 1950s. No one was really spending money on it. It was cumbersome. It required filming with two cameras, like one for the left eye, one for the right eye, of course. But with traditional cameras, this is really difficult. And that led to people feeling ill when they watched these movies to that reputation of 3D causing nausea and dizziness. Cameron had experimented with 3D for T2, Terminator 2, 3D, Battle Across Time, it's a long title, which was a 12-minute, $60 million film, $60 million for 12 minutes, that accompanied a Universal Studios theme park ride in 1996. And even though the cameras for that were huge, 450 pounds total, he achieved dynamic shots and he got excited about 3D in this new digital era, wanted to explore the real potential of it. According to Rebecca Keegan, who wrote a great biography of Cameron called The Futurist, quote, when he started work on a digital 3D camera in the year 2000, this was for Ghosts of the Abyss, most of the industry still thought of 3D as an entertainment fad, best left buried with smell-o-vision or disco. Snoop the old ROV was too big to fit into the nooks and crannies, though, that he wanted to get into. So he worked with his brother Mike on building miniature robotic cameras. He funded his own research starting in 1998, took three years and $1 million each to build the two bots that would come to be known as Elwood and Jake, Blues Brothers Nod, of course, robots that had operated at those depths before were the size of fridges, and these were the size of microwaves. They had internal batteries and sent data back to monitors through a thin fiber optic cable, the width of literally a hair, 2,000 feet of it, 2,000 feet of hair fiber cable. So it's 2001, and these cameras are almost ready. They'd have to be shipped last minute to Canada after the expedition had already begun. That's how down to the wire it was at this point. And Cameron had assembled a team. 
he's filming. This is a documentary, remember. So he's got a Ghosts of the Abyss crew with him for production. But it's small because everyone has to fit on the Keldish, which also has to house all of its own operational crew. Bill Paxton is coming along. He and Cameron were very good friends, and he'd taken Jim up here on an offer you can't refuse, right, to see Titanic with Jim Cameron. But Paxton's nervous. He's there to contribute by diving, but he's also there professionally to be the narrator of sorts for the movie, to be our eyes and our ears on the Keldish to explain how all of this technology is working. Cameron has also brought along a crew of his long-trusted historical advisors. There's Don Lynch, perhaps the most known modern Titanic historian, who served as technical advisor on the 97 film. And he's the one who wrote a companion book for Ghosts of the Abyss. A lot of the sort of insider info that I seem to have here is from that, just so you know. There's also Ken Marshall, whose paintings of Titanic inspired Cameron on the aesthetic for the 97 film. His art has come to define how we visualize the ship. Uh, There was also a microbiologist named Lori Johnston who is set up with her own lab to study the rusticles. And those are these complex bacterial communities that grow on the iron on shipwrecks. They grow like icicles and cover every bit of it. If you've seen pictures of Titanic of the wreck underwater. If you've seen this movie, then you've seen them, obviously. There's Louis Abernathy, who you might remember as Brock Lovett's sidekick in the 97 movie. (laughs) Side note, there's this scene in Titanic where Louis's character, also named Louis, unshockingly, is trying to convince Brock that older Rose is a fake and he's going to He's telling her about the history he stuck up about Rose, and he says that after she got married, she popped out a couple of kids. And my husband has heard this line through a wall way too many times, really, way too many, and so I don't blame him. So he often follows me around our house repeating it. She popped out a couple of kids. Anyway, I have popped out a couple of kids. So there you go. Abernathy, who, according to Paula Parisi, a journalist who has also written extensively on Cameron, is originally from Texas, Lewis is. He's trained as a producer, but has worked as everything from a detective to a screenwriter. And the Cameron brothers, Jim and Mike, met him during a trip to the Channel Islands. He was on the 95 expedition as well, and notoriously got so drunk one night on that trip that he barged into Cameron's suite and passed out on the director's bed. From all accounts, he is a self-proclaimed social coordinator of sorts on these expeditions, and honestly, I'd love to meet the man. To note, though, Lynch, seriously, to note, Lynch mentions in the book that Lewis worked with John and Ken on drafting navigation aids, things like layout of deck plans and where passengers would have been, and you'll see here shortly he actually plays a pretty pivotal role in a technical issue on the Ghosts of the Abyss trip. Okay, so we are into the movie. I'm going to play a clip. Here's Bill Paxton looking for his cabin on the Keldish. And I've got to say, you guys, this film starts with this upbeat needle drop music that just kind of gets you hyped up. And Paxton's boarding this ship. It's a glorious day in St. John's, Newfoundland. The ocean looks splendid. And there's this sense of adventure. And it's a little cheesy, but... 
It's also not. It's palpable, and it's particularly meaningful since we've now lost Bill Paxton. It hits hard. Okay, here we go. Hello. Hello. You speak English? Немножко. Oh, great. I'm looking for um, my room, uh, my cabin. Это вы сейчас пройдете направо к каюте Старпума, и он вам покажет вашу каюту, куда Now, on a side note, I very much grew up with Bill Paxton films in the 90s, Apollo 13. I remember watching it over and over again and praying his character would survive, even though I knew he did. But there was just this sadness and this empathy I felt toward him. And, of course, then there was Twister and Titanic. I know a lot of people dig on the Brock Lovett character in Titanic, but I absolutely think it's a stand-in for Cameron, and I absolutely think Paxton was doing exactly what needed to be done to frame that film, to ground it in this quest by this man who eventually figures out that any sort of quest doesn't matter. So back to the Keldish. Don Lynch writes that he joined on April 14th, 2001 with Ken Marshall in St. John's. From there, it was a 36-hour trip to where Titanic lies. 375 miles southeast of St. John's, and about 1,000 miles east of Boston. A smaller companion vessel followed, which housed the new underwater lighting system that the Camerons had designed as well, something they called Medusa. Of course, we've got the bots, Elwood and Jake, with the special 3D cameras. The subs are Mir 1 and Mir 2, piloted typically by Anatoly, but also by a pilot named Jenya Chernayev. I think I am pronouncing these names correctly. I really am trying. I googled pronunciations. I don't mean to laugh because this is serious. I I hate it when I mispronounce people's name. I think it's so disrespectful to mispronounce someone's name. So I genuinely apologize if I'm getting any of them wrong. Russian is difficult. is a difficult pronunciation for me. So if you've seen the movie already, then you know another group on board are also known as these cowboys, uh, to many, the rope handlers, who jump on the mirror subs to unhook cables that hold the mirror to a crane. Watching them is very intriguing. It's like some sort of water rodeo performance. It's pretty insane. So the Keldish can hold a crew of 100 and boasts a pool, a basketball court, and multiple stills for making vodka. The vessel is owned by the Shirshov Institute of Oceanology of the Russian Academy of Sciences, which is in Moscow. And it's typically in port at Kaliningrad on the Baltic Sea. Named after the Soviet mathematician Mitislav Keldish, this ship is a floating scientific community. Pilots, scientists, researchers, equipment operators, they live on this vessel for weeks at a time. Life on board revolves around the mirrors, the battery-operated submarines that go down untethered. Mirrors are like cement mixers. Think of that size. They dive for 18 hours, but can even be stretched to 28 they can, in an emergency, sustain emergency life support for up to five days. They can sustain 30,000 feet of water pressure. So that's 
like a working depth of 15 to 20,000 feet, but then with this huge 50% safety margin. It can essentially have accessories hooked up to it, the mirror can, and be used for any number of missions. That's how Cameron was able to come in and outfit it the way that he needed it for his. There's this sense of Russian culture on board that I found really compelling to watch. You see these shots throughout the film of making food. Someone brings out a guitar at some point and is singing. And what's interesting is that some knew a little English. Some of the Russians knew a little English, but most of the Americans on board knew no Russian. It's just such an intriguing situation to imagine, in my opinion. So through Paxton's narration, we begin these dives down to the wreck. Jim Sub always launches first with a crowd on deck, and Cameron has this ritual of yelling, see you in the sunshine, when he boards. Hard work, as it usually does, paid off, and Cameron took more good footage in the first hour of this trip for Ghosts of the Abyss than any he had during the entire month he'd spent filming Titanic in 1995. Paxton heads down in one of the first dives, or at least it's edited to look that way, but in another sub, this one piloted by Russian Genya Chernayev, he is with Paxton. And Paxton is all of us in this moment, fumbling, full of nerves, rambling in the narration about making sure his last will and testament had been taken care of for his wife and kids, before entering this tiny sub with someone he barely knows, entering this little beetle of a vessel with scarcely even foot room, and then plunging 13,000 feet to the ocean floor where there is enough water pressure to pulverize any body and anything instantaneously should the sub take a lethal blow. I know I'm only playing Paxton clips up to this point, please forgive me, but I adore this exchange between Bill and Jenya. Basically, Bill's asking about the emergency mechanisms of the ship, and the Russian pilot is communicating that enacting an emergency plan and losing their battery would be financially catastrophic. And Paxton wants to make sure that doesn't stop them from saving themselves. Just just listen. It's amazing. You know, if, if, if you have a real emergency and everything fails, and I heard something about you can, you can disengage, drop the, the, the main battery. Just Yes, we have uh, many possibilities. I hope uh, you know it will be better because it's very expensive. How much? It's $250,000, I think. Would you take a check? Yeah. I just, that moment, I you should watch the documentary just for that moment. It's so innocent and earnest and anyway, I had to play it. So Lynch, Don Lynch, the historian, says that Bill Paxton described the experience as ethereal, like he was a ghost of the Titanic himself after he'd been down there. And I wonder if this is where the title of the film came from. At one point, Paxton also told Lynch that he felt as though the ship were sleeping and they were disturbing her and that they should leave. When Lynch goes down for the first time in one of the mirrors, he writes, Jinya says casually, Mast door as they float up the fallen mast, and that it was, quote, 
draped with rusticles that looked like Spanish moss on a southern cypress. Ghostly and gothic. There's this romanticism in how we talk about Titanic's skeleton, in the way we talk about everything around her, in how we refer to her as a her. I will say, though, that throughout the film, there are live action sort of blurred scenes of actors, these scenes they filmed on a set away at a different time, and layered on top of scenes of the wreck. And they're to communicate what would have been going on at a specific spot on the ship if it was still intact. So it's sort of an overlay to show you what that part of the wreck would have looked like. And in some places, it works. In these moments that Cameron layers haunting music on top of it all as a director, he's obviously very skilled at that sort of thing. But in other places, it takes away, at least in my opinion, from just seeing the wreck, from letting a viewer experience it letting it wash over them. Elwood and Jake allow almost unfettered access. Listen to this. Here he comes. He's out. I think we were so intent on watching the screens. I was very quickly, I forgot where I was. The ROV had just unconsciously become our eyes. This is what it's all about. Cruising around at 12,000 feet. Jeff, Jeff, stand by. We're about to launch Bot 1, a.k.a. Elwood. So from that clip, you get a sense of just this back and forth on these subs between Cameron and Paxton and this amazing feat of these robots that they've built on land out in California and suddenly they're down. They say 12,000 feet here. I've read 13,000 feet in some spots. I apologize if I've got that wrong. I thought it was 13,000 feet. But anyway, it's it really is this amazing moment when these bots are unleashed and they're suddenly in the wreck of Titanic. They go down the opening that once held the grand staircase. They go into the dining saloon, into and that would be the first class dining saloon, by the way into the grand reception room, into staterooms forward of the grand staircase. In the dining saloon, rusting cast iron bases of tables rise from the silt and the debris on the floor. Two ornate leaded glass windows, five feet tall, brass handles still in place, and the wood paneling on either side in surprisingly good condition stand right near where the floor drops off marking the place that the ship split into two. And when they go past the remains of the bronze grilled doors that graced the starboard first-class entrance, then inside the outer gangway, their lights shine on these elegant floor-to-ceiling wrought iron gates with brass handles, almost as whole as they'd been in 1912. And no photos of them had ever existed before this. Back in 1912, as Don Lynch points out, people thought there would be plenty of time to take photos of Titanic. Near these gangway gates, a mahogany sideboard lays face down, china still visible through the back, plates, bowls, cleaned and ready 89 years later. The thinner pine walls between rooms are gone, but 
poles rising out of the silt and debris turn out to be bedposts from staterooms. Large boxes turn out to be fallen bunks that had once folded up onto walls. Collapsed washstands with porcelain wash basins remaining. And on a shelf, a carafe with a water class right next to it, still as if it had just been used for a quick drink. Because of Cameron's technology here, we get new revelations. Previously unknown differences between Olympic, that was Titanic's sister ship, and Titanic, including additional columns supporting the ceiling in Titanic's reception room, the design of the elevator's grillwork doors, ceiling lights in the elevator lobby, also previously unknown similarities between the two ships, patterns of leaded glass windows in the reception room and the dining saloon, a range of light fixtures in public rooms, the design of double doors that led from the D-deck entrance vestibule. These little details that Titanic historians and researchers and fanatics have debated the minutia of for decades. And here they are on camera being filmed for the first time ever. It's pretty incredible. In the Marconi room, the equipment is unbelievably still there and still visible, more importantly, still recognizable. The positions of the field regulator handles can be seen the way operator Harold Bride left them as he tried to wring more power from the motor as the ship's power failed. Also, the main switch on the DC panel is open indicating that Phillips, the other operator, deliberately shut down the apparatus before abandoning the station. That's powerful to think about. And the machine had problems the night before, to note. Phillips and Bride had to repair a short inside the transmitter. You can't help but think when you combine those images and that information, you can't help but think, at least I can't, the what if of it all, because it was the Marconi men's work and their signals, their work until the very end that saved the 700 plus lives that were saved. And without that, can't even imagine. On the promenade deck with the light from Medusa coming in, this underwater chandelier returned to Titanic, this ship that was meant to have so many beautiful chandeliers It almost looks like the scene from the 1997 movie when Rose walks back down the promenade and the ship comes back to life around her, rust back to steel. There are signs still readable, particularly with the light that these bots and the Medusa bring. One says, this door for use of crew only. The entry to elevators and the elevator signs look almost like you could see, you could use them today if your mind could remove the rusticles, remove the muck, but they seem just to be waiting. There's a stateroom with a lamp just laying where it fell on the floor, its cord still connected to an outlet, a dresser with intact open lower drawers, an innate footboard with bedding still in place, bedding still on this bed, some of it protected because it was connected to brass or steel and not eaten up. The expedition found Edith Rosenbaum's mirror, looked into it, looked in at Captain Smith's bathtub. There had been no photos of the two D-deck entrance vestibules. This was the very first look ever 
at those. So at one point, one of the ROVs loses power, gets stuck, settles on the ceiling in the starboard D-deck entrance, actually, right there. Bubbles indicating that its battery had exploded. And suddenly they have a whole new wreck on their hands. Guys, get a visual on us because we just lost power. And I think that's true. You're headed for the ceiling. You're sitting on the ceiling, Jim. We're dead in the water. We have a dead battery. Okay, we're watching you. We're going to watch you. We're just going to sit here and watch you. The whole thing was melting down. It was very bizarre. So Cameron admitted to Don Lynch that he performs, quote, best in crisis mode, and anything else is just sleepwalking. And this seems to track for Cameron. And the back half of, not the whole back half, but a little bit of the back half of this documentary becomes this rescue mission. Uh, Louis Abernathy comes up with a shockingly low-tech but kind of brilliant solution of attaching wire hangers to Jake and piercing Elwood's mesh around its propellers. Elwood's the one that's stuck. It was dangerous because doing this, they really risk losing both ROVs. And at one point, Cameron even asks that the cord between the two be cut, but the mechanism to do that failed. So they get a chance to keep trying, eventually getting both ROVs out. Here's the triumphant moment cut and edited in this almost cringeworthy montage, but it's great. Tilt your light down. Copy that, tilting it down. I keep feeling shocks. I think I still have them. That's why they're coming this way. Oh my God. Tell tell them to take a visual on us and see if we have Elwood. Look at that. Do you see Elwood? Oh my God, he got it. It looks great, it's beautiful. Do you see Elwood? Do you see Elwood? Yes, we do. When they bring Elwood up on September 11th, 2001, well, I'll let Cameron say it. Here's his quote from the intro to the companion book. Here we were poking through the wreckage of the defining disaster of the early 20th century, while the defining disaster of a new century had just taken place. Lynch writes that they were on a dive, got radio messages down from Jim's brother, John David, this is another brother, about something happening to the World Trade Center. They tell Jenya, who seems to speak mostly Russian, who says simply, oh, I see. There's this initial language barrier, I think, but it doesn't last long because later on the Russians found a recording of Ray Charles's God Bless America and played it over the loudspeakers. It's definitely a powerful meeting of moments, a meeting of tragedies, emotions. I don't know. There are a million ways to word it, of course. But what's interesting is that what's not in the film is this. Cameron was supposed to go on next after this expedition with another team to explore the wreck of the Bismarck. But that mission was canceled. International travel was paused, of course, uh, in the wake of September 11th. St. John's was full of stranded travelers. So even after the team had packed it in and returned to the continent, Cameron offered that they go back out to Titanic, all the way back out, as only eight of 12 planned dives had happened anyway. Lynch writes that it was do that, at least for him, or sleep on the floor of a gym. So they went back and they sailed back out to Titanic on September 16th. 
The extra dives after the September 11th change of plans went into third class crew quarters, the doctor's office. Third class open space still had table bases as well. Deadlights, the metal porthole covers, were all shut. Someone had obviously taken the precaution of closing them prior to the sinking. They found Scotland Road, the main crew corridor, but they didn't realize it at the time. And in the forepeak, at the very tip of the bow, it had flooded gradually during the sinking and a lot of walls were steel. Rooms for the crew were here. It was remarkably preserved and one room was marked surgery and they found the remains of medicine bottles. One was bright green. Also, they found a hospital cabin with two metal bunks and a mounted washstand and a crew drinking fountain likely installed specially by Thomas Andrews to make the crew more comfortable. He was notorious for that in a good way. This is also when they found a marble faux fireplace in Bruce Ismay's B-Deck parlor suite and Henry Sleeper Harper's bowling hat sitting waiting for him to return to his stateroom. This image is very famous. You might have seen it. If I mean, Obviously, if you've seen this movie, you've seen it. But also, if you've seen books that include photos of the wreck. This hat is very famous. Harper was the grandson of one of the founders of Harper and Brothers Publishing. He had boarded with his wife and an Egyptian manservant and a Pekingese named Sun Yat-sen. He'd survived and recounted seeing the iceberg. He'd also recounted disorganization among the crew and the chaos of floating boats. So the team tries to find William Carter's Renault motor car. (laughs) They think at one point they see headlights through the dirt and muck, but no one was ever sure. Elwood never worked properly again on this mission. Its battery emitted bubbles that could have cracked the sub, could have cracked the windows of the mirror. So the pilots had to position at this point on, from this point on, the sub perfectly to avoid what would have, if that happened, been absolute catastrophe. Cameron has dived Titanic more than 50 times, has spent 10 months of his life on the Keldish. By the time the September 2001 expedition ended, he'd spent 330 hours of his life getting down to Titanic, more than Captain Smith had ever been on Titanic before the sinking. For Cameron, diving doesn't stop there either. In May of 2002, Cameron made his postponed expedition to the sunken German battleship, the Bismarck, for a Discovery Channel special, bringing with him two survivors of the battle that sent the Nazi superweapon, the Bismarck, three miles down into the Atlantic with 90% of her crew. This ship was a tool of war, laden with swastikas, a grimmer experience, survivors were brought to tears. This was a decidedly darker sort of journey. Between 2001 and 2004, Cameron spent seven months at sea and went on 41 deep sea dives. He even bought his own subs at this point. By 2005, as the writer Keegan, Rebecca Keegan, so astutely points out in her book, Cameron had devoted seven of his midlife years usually the most prolific and lauded of eras for a director, to the discovery of new places, new technologies. In 2005, he helped make Aliens of the Deep, which was a documentary film 
in IMAX 3D format. And here Cameron teamed with NASA scientists to explore mid-ocean ridges, which are submerged chains of mountains in the Atlantic and the Pacific that are home to very unusual forms of life. So now he's working with NASA. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. And while working on his film Avatar in 2009, he was also, of course, simultaneously at work on an engineering project, which was designing and building a one-man sphere to dive the Mariana Trench. Is it Mariana or Mariana? I'm not sure. The deepest point in the world's oceans. And in 2012, he went seven miles down to the deepest place in the ocean. And he went by himself, to note. Ghosts of the Abyss is almost 20 years old itself now, a fact which made me feel a little bile rise in my throat the other day as I sat down to make these notes. I remember being a teenager and discovering this part of the Titanic world of the James Cameron world for the first time, this sense that Cameron couldn't give Titanic up, that it was a ghost that haunts him, because I think it does a lot of us as well. Despite its cheesy moments, despite its datedness a little bit, obviously, as we move further from it, this film really moved me, continues to move me. I've rewatched it several times. It's comforting to me. And I want to leave the discussion of the film just with one more little bit of Paxton. Rest in peace, dear Bill Paxton. On the final day, as we left... At the stern of the ship was like a white rainbow. It's almost like a halo effect over the wreck of the Titanic. And it had an ethereal feel to it. I think you leave Titanic, but it never leaves you. So I should also say that in talking about this movie and reviewing it, I, I guess is what I, I did, but I think with this one I'm more really just contextualized and, and wanted to tell you the story of it. But in speaking about it, it opens up a can of worms in terms of all the expeditions that have been to Titanic, who's led them, why they've led them, artifacts that have been brought up and, and who's brought them up. And like I said, I, I will be doing an episode pretty soon on Robert Ballard and the discovery of the wreck. But even that, even that episode will only scratch the surface of all of these debates of the entire history of, of going to Titanic. And I should say that it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing experience that people are having. There is a group called Ocean Gate that ran trips to down to Titanic just this past summer. There's been some amazing footage of the wreck as it stands now, including um, just the other day I saw a little snippet, including going back to Captain Smith's bathtub, interestingly enough. But it's been a lot of great footage that came out of it. And they're actually going back again next summer with um, spaces for civilians. So if you happen to have a boatload of money, pardon the pun, um, and are an adventurer, I there's a little part of me that wishes that I could do it. But all that to say, this is a process that's still ongoing. And likely in the future, there will be more documentaries about diving Titanic. There are other documentaries about diving Titanic, obviously. So this is just one little part of that story. It's certainly not meant to be the final word on any of that part of the Titanic story, but it's really meaningful to me and it's part of the James Cameron story. So I thought it would be a fun one 
to do. So thank you for listening. I hope you guys are enjoying the Titanic on film series. It's really fun for me to dip back into for these, it's sort of a hybrid research and just movie fan, movie watching, movie goer sort of experience. So thank you. And again, if you have a request for a film or a TV show or a documentary that you'd want me to talk about in one of these, please message me. I would love to hear from you. As always, please contact me. My email is unsinkablepod at gmail.com. On Instagram, it's unsinkablepod. On Twitter, it's also unsinkablepod. And actually, there's quite a few followers growing there, and it's really fun. I wasn't expecting that out of Twitter. I've never been a big Twitter person, but it's fun to share links. It's fun to interact with other podcasts on there. It's fun to just get to talk a little bit on there in that format. So definitely follow on Twitter if you haven't already. And let's see. Oh, starting not this Monday, but the next, the regular episodes will be on Mondays now. So Not this coming Monday, but the next will be my next regular full episode on Titanic in fiction, on Titanic novels. It's going to be great. That one's coming together. It's going to be a mammoth, but it's it's fun. And lastly, I did want to let you guys know that I have set up the Patreon page for Unsinkable. I must admit it's odd to talk about. And I spent a lot of time speaking with friends and family, getting their opinion about it. And I finally realized that, yes, I think it is 100% okay to give you guys the opportunity to support the podcast. And I'm sure most of you know podcasting is not only time-consuming, I mean, for me in a good way. I adore every moment that I work on it. But it is also expensive, things like hosting fees, website fees, research, equipment, hopefully in the future travel so that I can bring you some very intriguing and unique episodes. And if you're someone who likes the pod, if you're someone that is passionate about Titanic and you like what I'm doing here and you want to support that endeavor, this endeavor, please feel free to go to patreon.com and it's slash unsinkable pod And I have just a couple of tiers that are very small amounts of money per month. I think it's set at like three and five dollars. But just know that if you do that, I am so appreciative and every cent will go back into the podcast. Absolutely. If you're not able to do that, no worries. I I certainly don't expect it of anybody. I just wanted to offer that. I think it's a great model for podcasts to support the production costs. I certainly, I really truly have no interest in monetizing by inserting underwear ads into the podcast or anything like that. I really don't want to monetize by random third-party advertisements. That's just not my thing. I'm not going to do that. So if you want to support the pod, patreon.com slash unsinkable pod. All right. I think that's it. Oh, one more. Another way you can support. One more thing is that if you listen on Apple podcasts, please feel free to rate and review if you're enjoying the show. Those ratings and reviews really help bolster the visibility of the show. And so I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. All right, have a wonderful week, and I will see you in a little over a week for Titanic in Fiction. Cheers.